You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gracious Father, it is truly a blessing to have your word to us in our own tongue, our own language, the ability to read it and understand it. What a grace that is that you have given to your people and to your church, and we thank you for it. And We pray that you would give to us now illumination and insight into your word. Help us to understand the things that are written, understand your plan of redemption and all that Christ has accomplished on behalf of his people, that we might give praise and honor and glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that we've been learning in John chapter 17 is that the redemptive plan of God, all that God does on behalf of sinners to save sinners, is not about those sinners. It is really about the glory of the triune God. It is about God giving glory to himself. God is most concerned in the plan of redemption with his own uh, triune glory, the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all that God does is for that end and for that purpose. It is really not about us. We are quite incidental in it. It is really about God and his glory. We receive the benefit of that, but primarily God is not interested in seeking after our comfort or our happiness. That's not God's goal in salvation. God's goal is to glorify himself. The results of that, one of the results of that is that we do have happiness, we do have joy, good does come to his people because God is committed to his own glory. Now statements like that and a theology like that doesn't set well in our modern era. It actually sounds quite shocking to us to hear that. And that is because we live in a very self-centered, narcissistic, uh, self-oriented age. We live in an age and in a culture that seeks our own self-aggrandizement and our own betterment and our own joy and our own comfort. Uh, The culture in which we live, look, the culture in which we live is willing to redefine reality according to their feelings. I wake up today and I feel like a man. So I go into the men's bathroom. I wake up tomorrow, I feel like a woman. So I go into the woman's bathroom. And not only do I want to have the right to do I mean, I'm, I'm not speaking like first person of me, Jim, obviously, but we, we want to, of our culture, it's the royal we is what I'm talking about. We want the right to, to redefine reality according to our own predilections, our own perversions, our own feelings, whatever it is that we want. And furthermore, we want, we want our feelings enshrined in law so that everybody else is forced to affirm what we think is reality. And we live in a culture that, uh, that is saturated with moral relativism. Truth is what we make it. Truth is what we want it to be. And then we want our view of truth enshrined in law so that everybody else is forced to affirm our view of truth and to pat us on the back and tell us how how great we are for our view of truth and for however we want to live. We live in a culture that is willing to redefine a 6,000-year-old institution to simply affirm people's sexual perversions. And not only that, but to make other people affirm their sexual perversions. That is the culture in which we live. That's our generation. A few weeks ago I said that we live in the most narcissistic generation that has ever lived on the face of the planet. Now by that I wasn't poking fun at college students or teenagers or, you know, that. Look, it's my generation that laid the groundwork for your generation, teenagers, college students. Now Lanny's generation created my generation so I can't be blamed for that, right? This has been a, a long progression that has resulted in where we're at today. But it is a narcissistic generation. It is very self-centered and, and self, uh, self-focused. 
Consider the greatest generation. It was Tom Brokaw who wrote that book, The Greatest Generation, about the World War II uh, veterans and the generation that lived during World War II. That was a generation of people that were so sacrificial and so their moral compass was so set. These people were so grounded in truth and reality that they were willing to sacrifice themselves, travel half a globe away, and to give themselves in an effort to liberate a continent on the other side of the globe from fascism and tyranny and totalitarianism and Nazism and to put an end to the death camps and put an end to a world war. That's the greatest generation. And then there's us. We think Bruce Jenner is a hero. How the mighty have fallen, right? This is the most narcissistic generation and time that the world has ever known. And it slaps us in the face to be told that God's intention is not our comfort. That God's highest aim is not our happiness and our comfort. And it's not. God's highest aim is His glory. And that is the way that every Christian, every believer should want it to be. That's what I want. I don't want a God who seeks first my comfort and who seeks first my happiness. You know why? Because that's the God I see every morning in the mirror. I don't want to worship a God like that. I want a God who seeks His own glory first and is so committed to His own glory that He will see it through to the end, knowing that the results of that is going to be my good and the good of His people because God has determined that that is the case, that that is so. So we do live in a narcissistic generation, narcissistic society. But listen, even though that is our culture, the culture is merely a reflection of the cult. And by cult, I mean the old way that you used to speak of cults, not as non-Christian religions pretending to be Christians, like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and New Age and Scientology and all that. Those are cults, but I mean the older definition of cult, which just means the religious worship of a people. The culture is a reflection of the cult. So, for instance, you go into an Islamic country that has an Islamic religion, and that is the cult, that is the religious worship of that people. They will have an Islamic culture, will they not? Because the culture will reflect the cult of the people, the religious worship of the people. So really, if we want to say that, uh, if we want to lay the blame for our narcissistic, me-centered culture on the feet, at the feet of anybody, it ought to be and can only be at the cult, namely the religious worship of this nation for the last 50 and to 60 years. It really started way back with the ministries of Robert Schuller and Norman Vincent Peale, who, who preached a message and, and created a, a, a whole ministry circled or cycled around uh, your seeking of your self-betterment. It was all about self-aggrandizement and self-betterment and self-improvement and you being the best you that you ever imagined you could be. That was their ministry and their message. And all of that got woven into the seeker-sensitive and the seeker-centered uh, uh, culture and idea, philosophy of ministry that got embraced by the church at large. And so then we had an entire generation of people who were willing to rewrite church ministry, rewrite church doctrine, rewrite philosophy of ministry for the sake of gathering in people from all kinds of different backgrounds and any pagan who wanted to come in and join. It was all going to be about you. Go out and take a, 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 a survey of your community. Find out what the, the spiritually darkened and, and, and mentally darkened unbelievers in your community want for a church and offer that to them. Give them a church for the unchurched. Because after all, church is all about you. We have a whole generation of that. And so what do we have today? We have an entire church culture that thinks that God is a cosmic bellhop who exists to satisfy my needs and to make everything that He does all about me. And when that message has been preached to a culture for 50 and 60 years, it is no doubt and it is no surprise that we are reaping today the bitter fruit and the rotten fruit of that type of thinking that has been predominant in our land for 50 and 60 years. We're just now seeing the fruit of that way of thinking. And all of that way of thinking, it is completely contrary to Scripture, which says that God is doing everything that He is doing, not for my happiness, not for my comfort, not for your happiness, not for your comfort, 
but for His own eternal glory. And that everything He does is for that reason. All that He does. Why did God create the angels? It's for His glory. Why did God create this universe and this world? It's for His glory. Why fish and land animals and water and skies and, and why the stars and the planets? Why all of that? Why the limitless galaxies that we couldn't even see to within the last 50 or 60 years? Why did God create all of that? It's all for His glory. Everything that He does is for His glory. Why did God allow man to fall into sin and the devil to fall and man to fall into sin and ruin the entire race so that God might choose out of that race a people for His own possession and then send His Son into the world to die for those people, to atone for their sins, to bring them to faith in Him, to sanctify them and save them and to secure them everlastingly, a people for His own possession so that He might be glorified. And God is going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. He's going to put all of His people on that planet to live on there and to glorify Him forever and ever. And why does God punish the wicked in everlasting torment, conscious torment? Why does He do that? It is for His own glory so that His justice might be displayed against sin and His name might be vindicated and sin might be punished and defeated. And God does all of that for His own glory. Everything He does is for His own glory. And we've been looking at the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the work of redemption in John chapter 17. And we have seen there that the, the Son asked on the night before He was crucified that the Father would glorify Himself by glorifying the Son on the cross so that the Son may give glory to the Father as the Son was glorified in, the crucif- in His own crucifixion and in the work of redemption. And then the Son prayed that just as that He would be glorified just as the Father had given Him authority over all flesh so that all to whom the Father had given to Him He may give eternal life. That is the work of the Father, giving a people to the Son so that the Son can save them, and the Son will do that salvation. He will accomplish that work of redemption, saving a people for Himself so that the Father may be glorified through the work of the Son. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. And so the Father, the Son brings us to a salvation, brings us to a knowledge of the one true God and of Himself so that He might accomplish that great work of saving a people for the glory of His own name. We get the benefits, and God gets the glory. And that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it should be. And that is most certainly the way that it is. So John chapter 17, we're looking now at verse 4. At verse 4. And you're going to notice that verses 4 and 5 return to this theme of glory. And the glory of God is mentioned in verses 4 and verse 5. Look at verse 5. Well, let's read verses 1 through 5 together. Father, the hour has come. Jesus spoke these words, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You notice the repetition of the theme of glory there in those two verses. I have glorified you on the earth, And now glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So in verse 4, Jesus mentions the glory that that, uh, He has given to the Father during His entire earthly life and how His entire life has been lived for the glory of God and the glory of the Father. And then He prays in verse 5 that the Father would give Him glory. And He also mentions the glory that the Father and the Son shared together in eternity past before the world ever was. And we're saving verse 5 and all of its implications because that's the deity of Christ and, and all that goes with that, the preexistence of Christ. It's a fascinating and loaded verse. So today we're looking at verse 4 and this idea that the Son glorified the Father while on earth and He had accomplished the work which the Father had given Him to do. So we're going to be looking at that glory that Jesus gave to the Father and the work that the Father had given for, to the Son 
for the Son to do, by which the Son glorified the Father. So verse 4, I glorified you on the earth. Notice that's in the past tense. Notice that that is Jesus summing up. He is speaking there as a man who knew that his time was near, as a man who, who knew his appointed time, and he knew that that was coming to an end. He is fully aware of what lies before him in, the, in terms of the cross and all that that meant and the resurrection afterward, all of his suffering of his passion. He is fully aware of that. So he is a man aware of what the Father has appointed for him to do, and he can say conclusively, I have glorified you on the earth. That is Jesus describing his, the life that he lived on this earth all to the glory of God. Now you can think of all of the saints that might come to your mind, the saints of old. Luther and Calvin and Augustine, Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, New Testament saints, post-New Testament saints, Reformation saints, modern saints in the church, all of those men whom we admire and we love, men and women, I'm not trying to be sexist, men and women that we admire and that we love. Right? Think of all of them. Not a single one of them that has ever lived has glorified the Father as much as Jesus Christ glorified the Father. As much glory as could be sucked out of a human life, that is what Jesus Christ gave to the Father. It would be impossible for him to live another day and glorify the Father anymore. He had accomplished that work and glorified the Father in his life on this earth. That is the that is what the Son came to do, to glorify the Father. So how did the Son do that? How did he glorify the Father? This describes fully the life of Christ, which was lived entirely for the glory of God. And in the life of Christ, the Father was glorified in the works that he did, all the miracles, all of the works of compassion, the healings, the resurrections from the dead, his victory over demons. He loved, the, his, he loved his neighbor as himself. He loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He fulfilled the law perfectly. All that Christ did, everything that he did, was what the Father gave him to do. And he had accomplished the work of glorifying the Father through all the works that the Son did. Jesus described this in John chapter 4 to the disciples after his encounter with the woman at the well while she was on her way going back into Sychar to tell others uh, that she had found a man who had told her everything that she had ever done. And Jesus with his disciples said in John chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The Lord Jesus knew exactly what the work was that the Father had given him to do. And he came to accomplish that work so as to bring glory to the name of the Father. John 6:38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is why the Son came, to glorify the Father. But I thought He came for me. Did He come for you? He came to save you because you were given by the Father to Him. And what does that result in? God's glory. What, is it, what, what was the Son's ultimate aim? Your salvation or the glory of the Father? The glory of the Father. That's why He came. That's what He was, that's what he was after. That's what He came to do. That is what he accomplished. What did that mean in the plan and purpose of God? It meant your salvation. That is the path by which the Son glorified the Father and brought glory to the name of the Father. He didn't come to save you. I mean, you got saved, right? He secured the salvation of all those whom the Father had given to him. But that is the way in which he accomplished the goal, which was to glorify God and to accomplish the work that the Father had given us to do. So that is our example. In this way, Jesus Christ is our example. That we are to live our lives consumed with and taken up with the glory of God. This is why He has left you here. This is why He has left me here. So that everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God, giving thanks to, uh, in the name of Christ, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Our, Our goal, our aim, our desire should be the glory of God. Every decision that we make, every sin that we mortify, every sanctification, holiness that we pursue, it is so that we might honor and glorify God. Every act of service, every act of love, every act of obedience is for the glory of God. That's what we're seeking. 
That's what we're pursuing. Ultimately, not each other's good. Ultimately, doing good to one another so that we might glorify the name of God. And in that way, Christ is our example. And you realize that when we sin, we are choosing between glorifying our idol and glorifying the true God. That is the choice. Oftentimes when we are faced with a decision of whether or not to sin, we think of it in these terms. Should I sin or should I not sin? But but that doesn't go deep enough. Ultimately, the decision that we are making is, should I serve my idol or should I glorify the one true God? That's ultimately the decision that we are making. An individual who says he is addicted to pornography or addicted to lust, his problem is not pornography. It's not the Internet. You know what his problem is? He doesn't fear God. He is not committed to the glory of God. Get that issue solved. Get rid of the idol of the heart and make it a habit pattern to glorify and honor God and other sins take care of themselves. My choice is never to sin or not to sin. My choice is to serve my idol or to glorify God. And in this way, Christ is our example that everything he did was to live for the glory of God. And how did he do this? By accomplishing the work which the Father had sent him to accomplish. Look at chapter 17, verse 4, the end of it. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, what was the work that the Father had given for the Son to do? And notice again that this is the past tense. I have accomplished the work. When we think of the work of Christ, what do we typically think of? As his crowning achievement, the central thing that he came here to do. His death on the cross. But this is not post-crucifixion. This is hours before the crucifixion. And yet Jesus describes his crucifixion, his crowning work, as something accomplished in the past. I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Even though that the, the central feature, the crowning achievement of that work was yet future to him as he said this. How, does he, how or why does he describe in the past tense having accomplished something that he had yet to accomplish? How could he do that? You know how could he do that? He could do that because so fixed and so certain and so absolutely inalterable in the plan and purposes of God was the crucifixion of the Son and the atonement that he would make that there was no possibility that the Son could fail to do that which the Father sent Him to do. It is impossible for Him to fail. So He can speak of what He is about to accomplish as something that has already been accomplished. Just as Paul in Romans chapter 8 can speak of your glorification in the past tense. Why? Because it is so fixed in the certainty of God's mind and the eternal plan of God that it is as good as being a past tense event. Because it is it is that unalterable. There is no possibility that the Son could come into the world and come to this point and then fail to do what the Father gave Him to do, to finish that work. He knew that He would finish it. He knew that He would accomplish it. Now consider consider the difference of that theology with the theology that you would find in Heaven is for Real, the popular book written by Todd Burpo. You're all familiar with it, and many of you have seen that great movie that was made about that book. In that book, Todd Burpo says, when describing the crucifixion of Christ, that the reason the Father turned His face away from the Son while the Son was on the cross And that's not right, by the way. Father didn't turn his face away. Father didn't turn his back on the son. That's bad theology. But Burpo says that the reason the father turned his face away is because if he had looked upon what was going on on the cross and how his son was suffering, he didn't know. He he said, "I'm convinced that God wouldn't didn't know if he could go through with it." That's a rough paraphrase. That God didn't know if he could go through with the plan of the cross. So God had to turn away, as if he could be ignorant of what was going on. I can't look upon that because I don't know if I can stomach actually going through with it. And you and I are to believe that the eternal plan of God hatched in eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that that wonderful covenant that was made, that wonderful plan of salvation that incorporated us, that all of that hinged upon whether or not the Father could stomach what He would see on the cross. That is just bizarre world. That's nonsense. 
Jesus could speak of what he was about to do. It's already done. And he is there summing up his entire life's work. Now, when Jesus said that I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do, does he just mean the work on the cross? I don't think he does. I think that in, 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 uh, in John's theology, Jesus means more than just his work on the cross. He's actually speaking of his entire life's work. So you could begin at the, at the beginning. What did the Father give to the Son to do? The Father gave to the Son to come into the world and to take upon himself a human nature, to unite himself with humanity, to become the God-man, uh, God and man in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that in taking upon himself a human nature in his incarnation, that he would be forever united with humanity and able to be our representative. So he would be able, because he is identified with us, he would be able to do what Adam failed to do, which was to represent us. Adam represented us, but he represented us in sin. And so all who are born into this world are born into Adam. But in Christ, Christ represents us because he has taken upon himself human nature so he can stand in the stead between us and between God and he can represent God to us as a perfect mediator and he can represent us to God as a perfect high priest. That is what Christ came to do. That's part of the work. And he was baptized, not because he was a sinner and he needed to repent of any sin, but in his baptism, he identified himself publicly with sinners because that was to fulfill all righteousness. So that in dying later on a cross for those sinners, he would have done all that the Father commanded those same sinners to do. And he has identified with us in that. And then, not only was he baptized, but he lived an entire life of obedience to the Father. Have you ever wondered why it is that Jesus lived 33 years here on this earth. If all that was necessary was to take upon himself a body of flesh and to suffer and to die, couldn't he just come down here at a certain time in a mature body, live, say, a week or so to teach us some good moral principles and then die on a cross for us? Why live 33 years? Why do that? You know why that was? So that he might perfectly fulfill all of the demands of the law from his infancy all the way up through adulthood, so that he would know what it is like, so that he could sympathize with us in every stage of our development, in every aspect of our humanity, and so that he could perfectly fulfill the law on our behalf. What we need as sinners is not just to have our sins forgiven. What we need as sinners is to have our sins forgiven and have all of that sin debt replaced with an infinite righteousness that can commend us before the Father and before his throne. We need to be able to stand before the throne of God with a righteousness But it's not a righteousness which we possess. It's certainly not a righteousness which we can create. But it's a righteousness, in the words of Philippians chapter 3, that comes to us on the basis of faith. So why did Christ live 33 years? He lived 33 years to obey every element of God's law and to fulfill perfectly all righteousness, to do so sinlessly, without sin in thought, word, and deed, and then to offer himself up as a sacrifice so that that in, in our faith, because of our faith, All of our sin can be attributed and imputed to him and all of his righteousness can be given to us. This is the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness, his righteousness for our sin. And so we get all of that righteousness. That's part of the work, living a life of complete obedience to the Father. And then to minister and to do all the deeds that he did, all the miracles that he did, all the teachings, everything that he said, training up disciples, giving evidences of his messianic credentials and his claims to deity. All of that was the work that the Father gave him to do. And Jesus said, Here in John chapter 17, verse 4, I have accomplished all of it. Everything that the Father gave him to do for the salvation of those whom the Father had given to him, he had accomplished it. It was done. He had offered up a life of complete obedience. He had fulfilled the law perfectly. He had acquired and achieved the righteousness that you and I need. And then he died on a cross and paid the sin debt for all who will trust in him, offering a perfect 
sacrifice, a perfect atonement for those who needed an atonement and needed a sacrifice for their sins. He offered a perfect sacrifice to pay the price for all who we believe in him. That is the work that the Father gave him to do. And then to rise from the dead and go to heaven and make intercession for all those who trust in him. Offering a perfect sacrifice, that is what the Father gave him to do. And Jesus is able to say, I've done it all. I've left nothing undone. There was nothing of what the Father gave him to do that he could say, well, I've accomplished all of this except for these few things over here. Didn't quite get to those, Father. He wouldn't say that. Neither did Jesus do everything that the Father gave him to do and a whole bunch of other stuff that he made up out of thin air. He did only what the Father gave him to do, and he did all that the Father gave him to do, having accomplished that work of salvation to give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given to him. And Jesus speaks of this work all the way through the Gospel of John. Let me read you a few verses. You'll remember these. John chapter 4, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. John 5:36. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, these testify about me that the Father has sent me. John 9, 3, speaking of, of him healing the blind man, the man born blind. Jesus said it was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. John 14.31 So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. John 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus did all of this. All that the Father gave him to do, he did. Everything that he did was what the Father gave him to do and nothing more, so that he could, on that cross, the very last statement that he makes is, it is finished. And when he says that in John 19, verse 30, when Jesus says it is finished, is he just speaking about the the payment of the sin debt? I don't believe that he is. I believe in John's context, he is speaking to all of the work that the Father gave him to do. From the moment of his his incarnation, his conception, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, from that moment, all the way until he breathed his last, bowed his head and gave up his spirit, all of that work, he could say, it is finished. That's what John means. That's what Jesus means when he says it's finished. He had accomplished the work that the Father had gave him to do. Now, is this not the essence of the gospel message? It is finished. Right? It is finished. That's what the message of the gospel is. That's what sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his, in his uh, book on John chapter 17 writes this, The Lord Jesus Christ did not come into this world to tell us what we have to do. He came himself to do something for us which we could never do for ourselves. That is the difference between Christianity and every false religion, every other religious system. Every other religious system says you must make yourself acceptable to God. You have to do something to acquire enough righteousness so that you can make it into heaven. You have to do things in order to balance out the scales of eternal justice. May your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and you'll get in on the light side of the force as opposed to the dark side of the force. You'll finally make it through the gates of heaven when you have acquired enough righteousness by your own works, your own deeds, and your own doings to make it through heaven and become good enough for God to welcome into heaven. That's what every false religious system says. And Christianity says... You cannot do anything righteous. The Bible says you cannot do anything good. Nothing. Why? Because you're a sinner. That's why. Because your nature is corrupt. Your heart is corrupt. And without the grace of God, you can do nothing worthy of salvation. You cannot do any righteous deeds because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And along comes the gospel and says, it's done. What you can never do, what you are unable to do, that which you, not what you are prohibited from doing, but that which you are utterly unable by virtue of your nature and your sinfulness and the corruption of your own nature and of my nature, those things that we are unable to do, those things Christ has done for us. He has kept the law perfectly on our behalf. And he paid the sin price so that we can come into heaven 
not because of our own deeds, but because of the deeds of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Not because of our righteousness, but the righteousness of another, namely Christ, who is infinite in his righteousness. That is the, that is the essence of the gospel message. The Christ has done for us, to the glory of the Father, all that is necessary for salvation. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the foundational essence of the gospel, that we know this, that we believe it, that we understand it, that we embrace it, and that we rest in it. It's done. Not do, 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 but done. It's finished. And so there is nothing else to do. There's nothing else to contribute. There's no work that needs to be done. And so now I don't work for my salvation. I work out my salvation. What did Christ come to do? To make salvation possible? Did he come to just show us the way, point us in the direction, pat us on the back and say, no, you go off there now. You, you do your best you can. And we'll see if you make it to glory. Is that what the Son came to do? Or did the Son came to infallibly and fully save all those whom the Father had given to him? That's what the Son came to do. Believing this and knowing it and resting in it and banking my hope for eternal life on that, that is the gospel. That is the foundation of our assurance. That is the foundation and the ground of our security in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's what we get in Christ. What a wonderful salvation and what a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, you have been so good to us to grant to us eternal life and to do in us the work that you predestined from eternity past. You're gracious and kind and good and all of the, all of that goodness has been manifested in what you have done to your, for and to your people through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for a Savior who could not fail. Thank you for a Savior who did not come just to make us savable, but has actually saved his people from their sin and secured the salvation everlastingly of all who trust in him. He is worthy of our praise and worthy of our adoration and worthy of our unflinching and constant obedience. And we pray that you would give us grace to offer to him that obedience and that love and adoration. We thank you, O precious Son, for dying in our stead, lost and depraved and wretched sinners that we were, that you gave your life as an atonement for us. Thank you for finishing that work that the Father gave for you to do. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for regenerating us, your people, and uh, opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel that we might know the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And by that, have eternal life. Thank you, our gracious Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.